This week uh, we embark on what will really be a series of parshios relating to the Mishkan and uh, attendant matters. Uh, in normal years, it runs for three weeks because Trumatetzava and Vayakab Bikudi are together. This year, Shana Mu'uberet, we have the, the whole five weeks spread <coughs> to consider <coughs> and contemplate the uh, matters of the Mishkan. And the well known Posuk at the beginning of the Parsha, so we're in uh, Truma Perik Kafhe Posuk Ches, reads, The Osuli Mikdash, the Shochanti Besocha. They shall make for me a Mikdash, I will dwell in their midst. And this actually, as the Rambam states, forms the basis of one of the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. Namely, well, not surprisingly, to build the base HaMikdash. V'asuni Mikdash. The reason why it's noteworthy that the Rambam says this, as is pointed out by the <coughs> Kesev Mishnah, is that uh, there are other psukim in the Torah which more explicitly refer to the Beis HaMikdash. After all, this Pasuk in Parshas Truma was said first and foremost with regards to the Mishkan. Now, the Mishkan is not exactly the Beis HaMikdash in, in, in subsequent times. And there are psukim which actually discuss more explicitly the Beis HaMikdash. They're in Chumash Devarim, Parshas Ekev and Re'ei, V'hayah HaMakom, Asher Yivchar Hashem, L'Shaken Shemosham, the place where Hashem will choose. That's a reference to the, to, to the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. That's where you should bring your korbonos. And so it's interesting <coughs> that nonetheless, the Rambam sees the source for the building of all Batei Mikdash. The source is in our Parsha, not in those later Psukim, even though they're more explicit. And indeed, it should be noted, there are certain Rishonim who do cite those later Psukim as the source. The Sefer Mitzvah's Godel, the Smag, uh, when he talks about the Mitzvah of building the Beis HaMikdash, takes us to Chumash Devarim, which talks more uh, expressly about the Beis HaMikdash. <coughs> However, as the case of Mishnah explains, <coughs> one of the major yesodos of the Rambam when it comes to mitzvahs is that a mitzvah is a command and it's only a mitzvah of the Torah if the Torah commands it, if and when the Torah commands it. Which means you could have things that are mentioned in the Torah and if therefore it's clear that the Torah wants them to be there. But if the Torah never actually explicitly tells you to do it, that's not called a mitzvah in the full sense of the word, and it will not <coughs> be a mitzvah of taryag. And here is, a, is a, a very good example. We've noted other examples in the past, but we'll just stay where we are uh, with this uh, matter. <coughs> because those later psukim in Chumash Devarim, they do refer explicitly to the Beis HaMikdash, but they never tell you to make a Beis HaMikdash. They talk about it as something that already exists. The place that Hashem will choose, the Shaken Shem Sham, there you should bring your Karbanos. But a mitzvah to make such a place <coughs> is missing in those psukim in Chumash Devarim. And that is why the Rambam says, if there is a mitzvah to build the Beis HaMikdash, and there is, the Gemara famously says 
in Maseches uh, Sanhedrin and Dafkaf that we were commanded with three mitzvahs when we entered the land of Israel to appoint a king, to destroy Amalek, and to build the Beis HaMikdash. So the Gemara has explicitly tagged <coughs> building the Beis HaMikdash as a mitzvah. If it is a mitzvah, there needs to be a tzivoy. And the only tzivoy is in Parshas Truma. And even though in its immediate context it's talking about the Mishkan, its broader emanation and application is to all subsequent mikdashim. And uh, that is the position of Rambam. So our parsha opens with one of the Tariq mitzvahs to build the Beis HaMikdash. In the absence, although it's been a while, but we, we, we call it temporary, in the temporary absence of the, <coughs> of the Beis HaMikdash, we do have, or the closest thing that we would say, is the Beis HaKnesses, is the Shul. And the question that is worth asking is, is there a mitzvah to build the shul? <clears throat> the Gemara discusses the requirement to build the shul. There is no question that you need a place where people will be able to congregate and, and daven. No question about that. And if you don't have one, you need to see to it. Um, and it can be enforced in terms of the contributions towards the shul. These are, in a sense, important halachas, but they, the Gemara never actually discusses whether... In the pure terms, building a shul is a mitzvah, and if it is a mitzvah, what mitzvah might it be? The discussion begins, <coughs> or surrounds, the words of the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilchus Tefillah, in the beginning of Perik Yud Aleph, says as follows, Kol makom shiyeshpo asara mi Yisrael. Any place where there are ten people, ten Jews mi Yisrael, they need to prepare a house. That they will be able to enter for davening at all davening times. This place is called Beis HaKnesses. And that, there begin the Rambam's discussions of Beis HaKnesses. But he does start by saying that whenever you, as soon as there's a minion in town, so there, they need to prepare a place, and that place is called a Beis HaKnesses. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, in the Chubas, in the Igris Moshe, or Rechaim Chelek Beis, notes that the Rambam didn't say that if there's a minion in town, they need to congregate somewhere with the implication that there just has to be a place where they can get together. The Rambam said they need to prepare a place. Which means if you have an existing place, or perhaps <coughs> someone is generous and he'd allow uh, he'd people to daven in his home, or he has, you know, has a, a large living room, or so on and so forth, so your, your problem is solved. You have a place, but the Rambam didn't say that you need to have a place. It says you need to prepare a place. And what that means is that there is a, an active mitzvah to prepare and to build a place which is called a shul. A basic says a shul. If that's true, the question we're entitled to ask is, where does this mitzvah come from? Uh, if we have successfully identified it, building a shul as a mitzvah, what is the source of that mitzvah? Where does it derive from? Says Ramosha Feinstein, we know 
that the shul is referred to, or the, the Navi Yechezkel makes reference <coughs> to what he calls Mikdash Ma'at. Mikdash Ma'at is a, uh, a, we would say, a miniature sanctuary, a miniature Mikdash, something of Me'in. And the Gemara further explicates that this refers to Batei Knesios. This refers to shuls. The shuls are Mikdash Ma'at, Cesar Moshe Feinstein. If the shul is a mikdash ma'at, and if there is a mitzvah of ve'osuli mikdash, there is a mitzvah to build the mikdash, which as we see in either the mishkan for the wilderness or later on beis hamikdash. So there's a mitzvah to build the beis hamikdash. So if a shul is a mikdash ma'at, so there is, I guess, what we could call a mitzvah ma'at to build a shul. It, it derives from that mitzvah. It is an application of the mitzvah of the Osuli Mikdash. Presumably on a Durabanan level, on a, on a, uh, <coughs> although some suggest maybe it's, it's an, a, 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 a secondary aspect of the, of, of the Torah mitzvah. But this, says the Rebbe Shefeinstein, putting it all together. The Rambam says you need to prepare such a place. The Gemara tells us that Yechezkel's words Mikdash might refer to a shul. There's a mitzvah to build the Mikdash. You put it all together. We have discovered the source of the mitzvah to build a shul, which is the Asuli Mikdash. And what's interesting is that the Zohar Kodosh actually says this. It's quoted in, in, in numerous places. We don't have uh, indulge in lengthy quotations from the Zohar. Uh, <coughs> I would thereby uh, be exposing only my ignorance of the Zohar. But four lines to, to um, impress upon us the point. Beautiful words. How beloved are the Jewish people before Hashem. <coughs> Any place where they dwell, Hashem can be found also with them. Makativ, what does the Pasuk say? The Asuli Mikdash, the Shachanti Besocham, make for me a Mikdash, I will dwell in their midst. The Alma Mikdash Ikri. Any shul is called a Mikdash. So the Zohar, this is the Zohar Kodesh in Parshas Naso, <coughs> explicitly associating the idea of preparing and building a shul <coughs> with the mitzvah of Asuli Mikdash, because every shul is considered to be a Mikdash of sorts. Mikdash Ma'at. So that's a, 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 an amazing way to, to, next time we go to shul, to appreciate that uh, it is the Mikdash Ma'at, and the building of such was, uh, was the build, was the Ve'asuli Mikdash. If the person didn't get maftir and he builds another shul, I'm not sure that that's called Ve'asuli Mikdash, but certainly to the extent that people need it, and if the, if, the, if the community grows and you need more places, and presumably it is equally acceptable if different uh, Adas have different Minhagim, so that each one feels comfortable, like with their Minhagim, Svardim, Ashkenazim, Hasidim, Temanim, presumably uh, it would be uh, likewise. <clears throat> but there are halachic ramifications for the designation of a shul as a Mikdash Ma'at. And it begins in the, in the following interesting discussion in the Gemara. The Gemara in Maseches Erechen and Dafavav relates uh, quite briefly, actually, that there was a certain uh, non-Jew, certain Gentile, and he decided that he wanted to donate a lamp to Rava's shul. He lived in Rava's neighborhood, 
and he wanted to do donate a lamp to the shul. <coughs> and Rava accepted it. Tosfus <coughs> alert us to what would seem to be a concern here. Because if it's true that the shul is like a mikdash, it's a mikdash ma'at, then seemingly we need to vet who is acceptable to donate materials to the shul. Is it okay for, uh, for this Gentile person, good person though he might be, we don't know, but he's not Jewish and, and he's, he's giving something to a shul. Is that okay in light of the fact that the shul is really like a mikdash? And Tosfer say, yes, it is okay. I mean, it's obviously okay. Rava accepted it. But why is it okay? Very simply, say Tosvas. Because if we look upon his, do- what the, his donation to the shul as, let's call it, a korban. I mean, what does one give? One gives korbanos, one offers. <coughs> if we look upon it as a korban, the halacha is that, you can, that a non-Jew can send korbanos to the Beis HaMikdash. So if a non-Jew can send korbanos to the Beis HaMikdash, right? not all korbanos, right? but certain korbanos, he can send a korban, so he can send a lamp. It's no different. And therefore, everything is in order. But what is fascinating is there is now a follow-up discussion. Because what Tosfos have done, this is Tosfos in Maseches, Bovabasra and Davches, <coughs> what Tosfos have done, have basically identified donations to shuls as being the equivalent of bringing a korban to the Beis HaMikdash. Now, for a non-Jew to bring a korban is acceptable, but there's a type of Jew for whom to bring a korban is not acceptable. And that is a Jew who is called a mumar. A mumar, which is an apostate, someone who deliberately or publicly uh, violates or repudiates uh, enough of, of Judaism. He's born Jewish, <coughs> but his status is that of a mumma, if he publicly violates Shabbos and so on and so forth, whatever the definitions of, of mumma are. From such a person, says the Gemara in Chulin, Dafhei, from such a Jew one does not accept a korban. And based on this, one of the late Ashkenazi Rishonim, the Mariwile, Rabbi Yaakov Weil, the famous Ashkenazi family, Weil family, says that if someone is a mumar and wishes to donate something to a shul, one does not accept it. That is the other side of the equation. Because if it, once again, if a shul is like a Beis HaMikdash, <coughs> so it has Beis HaMikdash contribution rules. And uh, one doesn't accept a korban from a mumar. Tosas told us like donations are like a korban. One would not accept a contribution from uh, a Yisrael Mumma. That is the, exp- the, the position of the Rabbi Yaakov Weil, and it's, it's cited by the Ramah. There is a fascinating discussion of this matter <coughs> in the Tshuvas of Rabbi Vad Yosef, in the Tshuvas Yabia Omer Chelek Zion, and I received the reference to uh, consult this Tshuva, and to my uh, surprise and delight, when I opened up the Tshuva, I found that it was addressed to none other than Rav Yehuda Kuberman, Zatzal. And the background to the tshuva was as follows. So Rav Kuberman was just setting up the campus of the Michlala. Uh, and as within the campus, of course, there, is, there was to be a shul. Somehow, it doesn't need to go much into the details, <coughs> but there was some reform community 
in America who were very enamored by the whole idea of this new institution in Jerusalem and they offered to fund the building of the shul in the Michlala. And so Rav Yehuda Kuperman, Nafsho Bishelato, he went to ask Rabbi Vadi Yosef, <coughs> is, can, can I accept the money from them? And Rabbi Vadia answers and says, in, in, in principle, it's permitted. It is permitted to accept uh, their contribution. And he says, for one of three reasons. And the background to the first two, which are really very, very much connected, is a prior ruling. We've, we've cited Rabbi Yaakov Weil, who says that uh, if a mummer, if he wants to donate to a shul, one can't, uh, one can't accept it. <coughs> but there is a prior Ashkenazi ruling from one of the great Ashkenazi Rishonim, Rabbeinu Yehuda HaChosid, who's famous for his work, Sefer Hasidim. He's famous for his ethical will, Tzavas Rabbi Yehuda Hasid, and also for the Sefer Hasidim. The Sefer Hasidim is full of uh, amazing things, and uh, among them, many halachic rulings. And the Sefer Hasidim says <coughs> that if, he talks again about a mumar, I guess they were uh, uh, extant, if not prevalent, at the, at, uh, in, in those times. And this mumar wanted to uh, sponsor the writing of a Sefer Torah and have it donated to the shul. Whether it's conscience or whether it's who knows what, but Tachlis, that was his desire. He wants to, over, to, to underwrite the, the writing of a Sefer Torah for <coughs> the shul. And the Sefer Hasidim said, it's acceptable. He can do that. So now the question is, well, well how, does, how does this work with everything we've seen so far? Presumably, uh, giving a safer Torah to the shul is no less than giving a, a lamp to the shul. And, and he is a mumar. So how does it work? So the, the two <coughs> primary ways of understanding this ruling of the Sefer Hasidim is, number one, the Mabit, one of the greats of Tzfat in the time of Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Cairo who actually disputes the Mariwail. And he says that the only problem with, the, with a mumar is to bring an actual korban, like an actual animal to be offered on the Mizbeach. Any other type of, of, of item that's given does not have the same restrictions at all. That's the opinion of the Babit. Many poskin rule like him. And therefore, a Sefer Torah, it's not an actual korban. There should be no problem at all. But the second idea is that even if we say that all items are like a korban, but it's got to be the item itself. In the Gemara, the case in the Gemara, the, this Gentile, he, he donated a lamp. It's an existing entity. It's an item already there to give to the Beis HaMikdash, to, to give to the Shul. There, one begins to talk, is it like a korban or not? But if you're funding something, the money that you pay is not like a korban. The money that you pay is tzedakah. And <coughs> therefore, says uh, in, the, in, in Rabbi Dachosit's case, this mumar, he, he wanted to, to fund the writing of the Sefer Torah. He's not going to write it. It's not that he had it and he's giving it. He, he's paying the money towards it. And that money is tzedakah. And, and tzedakah one can, of course, accept from, from any Jew. It's no longer about the Beis HaMikdash. And on the contrary, says Rebbe Vadya, it's good for them to do a mitzvah, and like an actual mitzvah for once. So, and who knows what, what good things it might bring, so, so, so that could be accepted. 
The final point of leniency, says Urbavadya, which is a major uh, discussion, and we're only referencing it for its application here, is, is that there is a, a good amount of room to say that reform jury nowadays is not considered to be a mumar, apostates. In other words, there is another category. A mumar is someone who himself is familiar, aware, fully connected, and then disengages or rejects and, and, and apostatizes. Or... But someone who's born into that, or someone a second, third, X number of generations uh, later, they're born into it, they don't know any better. There is another category in halacha which is called tinok shenishba. Tinok shenishba bin agoyim, which is if a Jew who's uh, he's captured uh, as, a, as a baby bin agoyim, <coughs> and that's, a, that's where he grows up, he's never heard of uh, mitzvahs or anything like that, so even though he doesn't know anything, doesn't keep anything, doesn't hold of anything, one wouldn't call him a mumra because he, he has no exposure to that. And the major question is, and it's, it's, it relates to so many areas of halacha, uh, is, is so what then is the status of these later generations where it's not them that rejected it. This is, what, this is all they know. It's how they were brought up. And, and what the messages that they hear from their environment don't help. They only support and nurture this, this uh, uh, detachment from traditional Judaism. So that, that, that's where they're brought up. They're almost like they're, they're captives of their environment. <clears throat> that's a very interesting uh, discussion. No one actually physically captured them, but their, their <clears throat> hearts and minds have been captured. And what's very interesting, and th- I'm not sure if this is widely known, again, we, we, we're containing this within our discussion, but, but nonetheless, <coughs> the issue of Tinnik Shanishba, which is majorly uh, discussed like in the 1800s and beyond, with, uh, with regards to uh, you know, all, all, all the uh, individuals and groups at that time, it goes back much earlier, this notion. And in fact, it has a source in the Rambam himself. Because the Rambam is not discussing um, uh, reform and, and, and the like, but he's discussing effectively their equivalent, which is the Karaim, the Karaites, who resurfaced in the time of the Geonim and rejected Torah Shabbat Peh. A rejection of Torah Shabbat Peh is, is grounds for Mumer, as surely as public uh, Shabbos violation, which means that, that, that uh, on a certain level, a Karaite is considered, if, he, if he's Jewish by, by descent, <coughs> but he's considered like a Mumer. So now the question is, well, well, what about their children? I mean, the original, whoever it was, Onan, I believe his name was, in the time of the, the time of Sajagon and thereabouts, that's the, eight, that's the 800s. I mean, we're talking now two, three hundred years later. There are people, they have this long, quote-unquote, tradition of being Karaites. They don't know any better. They, that's, how they're, that's how they're brought up, and, and so on and so forth. And the Rambam, actually not in the Mishnah Torah, it's in his parish on the Mishnah to Maseches Chulin, in the beginning, uh, he is inclined to see all those X generations later of Karaites as Tinuk Shenishba, and, 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 and therefore the, he does not give them the designation of a Mumar. Others argue with him, as others argue today. Others argue that, that uh, everyone now has exposure to everything, right? You just type in Judaism, and if you're just patient enough and you get past the first five results, you'll, you'll, you'll find something of substance. So everyone has exposure. There's, there's all sorts of programs available. It's a very, obviously, highly invested discussion. But certainly as a sniff, that is to say, as, a, as an auxiliary 
part of the discussion, as, part, you know, as, as, as one of the pieces in, in the discussion, says Rebbe Vajir, it could be that reform jury by this stage are, are all considered Tinnik uh, Shanishba, and therefore they wouldn't have the status of Mumar anyway, in which case it's certainly okay. Thus far, what have we seen? To summarize, three arguments for leniency to, for Rav Cooperman to accept the donation from this reform community in America to build the shul in Michlala. As we said, either the problem is only ever an actual korban, maybe money in any case is different, it's, it's like tzedakah, and it could be the tzedakah shanishba. And everything is going wonderfully towards this permissive ruling until the final paragraph, where Bavadi Yosef says, I do not recommend you taking the money. And the reason why, after, after all this, I mean, why not? What's the problem? The problem is that Rav Cooperman had been informed <coughs> that this community, if indeed they would contribute the, the sum to build the shul, they would expect a plaque in the shul recognizing and honoring them as the benefactors says Rabbi Vajra, for all we've said in terms of leniency and so on and so forth, understanding, but there is no way in the world that an orthodox shul can have a plaque in it honoring a reform community. And if that is a condition upon which they won't budge, I, cannot, I, I have to recommend that you do not accept the money and I give you a bracha that you will receive the money from somewhere else. There are harbe shluchim lamokum, Hashem has his ways, uh, and indeed uh, that was the case because the, the Shulen Mechlala was built. It's very nice. So clearly the money in the end came from somewhere else. But it's very interesting to see how from the Pasuk of Asuli Mikdash, to see how then what that means in terms of building a shul, the status of a shul, the halachas that apply to a shul, um, with, um, so it's, it's fascinating to see <clears throat> that play out in the, in the contemporary, uh, so to speak, sphere. So having spoken about the Osuli Mikdash, uh, let us move on a little deeper into the <coughs> Parsha. As we mentioned, um, the Mishkan really dominates the next five Parshas, Mishkan and attendant matters. Specifically, this week's Parsha is the building of the Mishkan. Next week, Big Day Kahuna, the commands to do so. Then much happens in Kisisa, obviously, which we'll come back to. And then Vayakan and Pekude are then a description of it happening. Vayakal, the Mishkan, Pekude, the Big Day Kahuna. That is a very broad uh, summary, but it's, it's broadly correct. <coughs> but specifically, and if we focus now on this week's Parsha, which is the Mishkan, and its counterpart in Parsha's Vayakel, also the Mishkan, and this week there's the mitzvahs to do it, and the Vayakel is when it was done, it's all the more reason to, to take note of differences between them. What is considered, quote-unquote, a repetition is all the more reason to, to pay attention to divergences between the Mishkan in Truma and then how it's later on described in Vayakal. And these, some of these differences are very general in nature, some of them are very specific in nature. But as we know, the Torah is made of Klalim and Pratim, and if we to- take note of, of all of them, the picture will emerge. What is the general, um, dif- or the most general difference between these two? is very simply as follows. 
There are two component parts to the Mishkan, really, when one thinks about it. There is the Mishkan itself, that is to say, the body of the building, the boards and the, 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 the coverings, the roof, etc., the sockets. So, so that's what we'd call the Mishkan. <coughs> but then there are also the Kalim. The vessels and the appurtenances of the Mishkan, the Mizbeach and the Menorah and the Shulchan and Aron and so on and so forth. Now the question is, well, which of them should be dealt with first? If we look in our Parsha, Truma, almost immediately we meet the Aron, right? And after that, the Menorah and the Shulchan, etc., in other words, <coughs> the, the Parsha's Truma first deals with the Kalim of the Mishkan, and then uh, comes round to talk about how to build the body of the Mishkan, the, the, the beams and the coverings, and, and uh, so on. That's Parsha's Truma. In Parsha's Vayakel, when the Mishkan is actually built, the Torah describes first the manufacture of the Mishkan itself, and then the manufacture of its kalim. <coughs> so that is quite significant. I mean, it's literally the two halves of the Parsha are flipped around. In Truma, it's kalim and then Mishkan. In Vayakel, it's Mishkan and then kalim. What's more interesting is that, or further interesting, is that the Gemara discusses an exchange between Moshe and Betzalel on this very matter. It's a Gemara in Maseches Brachos and Dafnun Hay. It's quoted in part uh, in Rashi in the beginning of Parshas Pekude. And the Gemara says that when Hashem told Moshe to transmit to Betzalel to make the Mishkan and the Kalim, Moshe inverted the order and told Betzalel to first make the Kalim and then make the Mishkan. And then, as the Gemara proceeds, <coughs> Betzalel countered. Most surprisingly. And Betzalel said, Min shel olam. In the normal way of things, Adam uh, a person normally builds a house and, and, and then he gets his kalim and puts it in. You don't start with a kalim in, 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 in an open territory, you know, area and then build a house around them. So it's the normal way to build the house first and then, and then do the kalim. Could it be, therefore, <coughs> this is still Betzalel talking, could it be that Hashem really told you first to make the mishkan and then the kalim? First the building and then the kingdom, because that's the way it's normally done. That's quite a thing to say. And at this point, Moshe conceded, indeed. That was what Hashem said. First the Mishkan, then the Kalim. Hashem said to Betzalel, I don't know how you know that. You must have been there. And that, says the Gemara, is the origin or the association of the name Betzalel. Betzalel is Betzel Kel in the shadow of Hashem, meaning you must have somehow been there in the shade, overhearing, when he, when he really did tell me first the building and then the vessels, because that's actually true. This Gemara is, is wonder of wonders. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's, <coughs> there, it's, the, the questions abound. I mean, first and foremost, uh, the Gemara says, that when Hashem told Moshe first to 
to, to tell B'tzalah, first the building and then the, and then the Kalim. And then Moshe switched it around. Why? Why would he switch it around? I mean, uh, luckily, quote-unquote, B'tzalah chapt and, uh, and, and, re- and reinstated the, the original order. But, but why, what would possess Moshe, so to speak, to, to, uh, to invert the order in the first place? Especially when you consider that B'tzalel's argument seems completely irrelevant. Because he has been told by Moshe, that Hashem says first the vessels, then the Mishkan. And what does B'tzalel say? You know, a person doesn't normally build a house like that. What basis of that for, for questioning Moshe's words? I mean, it's not a normal house. No house looks like the Mishkan. So it's not a normal house. So why would you challenge Moshe based on Minhagar Shalona? It seems uh, completely inappropriate. And by the same token, <coughs> if for some reason B'tzalel's argument does have merit, just to, to build the, make the building first and then the vessels, because that's how people do it, so then why does Moshe say, you must have overheard when Hashem told me? He didn't overhear anything. He's just telling you the way he thinks a house should be built. So the Gemara, I mean, if one could borrow an expression from the menorah in this week's parsha, kula miksha achas. It's one difficulty from beginning to end. And, and that needs to be <coughs> examined further. From the general difference of the order of these things to more nuanced differences or more detailed differences, because in the end, the same theme will pervade all of them. Um, <coughs> the north and south sides of the Mishkan walls, that is to say, both comprise 20 beams. The word for a beam in Hebrew is keresh, which means that the 20 beams is called or referred to as esrim kreshim, 20 beams. Keresh, huh? Esrim kreshim, 20 beams. And that is how it's referred to, or that's how they are referred to in Parshas Vayakel, esrim kreshim. But if you look in Parshas Truma, you will see that's not the case. In Parshas Truma, they're called Esrim Keresh. Along the north side, Esrim Keresh. Along the south side, Esrim Keresh. Now, it's true that that's not inaccurate per se, because the, the singular can be used for the plural. It can. But even so, Hadavar Omer Darshani. I mean, later on, the Torah says it like we would expect it, it, it to be said. Esrim Kreshim. So why is it that initially <coughs> it's called Esrim Keresh? A similar question. The Kruvim. So as we know, there were two Kruvim made by Moshe. And ha- what, what is the way to refer to two Kruvim? Well, two of anything. It's called Shnei whatever. Shnei Luchos or whatever. And therefore, the uh, two Kruvim are Shnei Kruvim. And once again, that indeed is how they are referred to in Parshas Vayakal. When B'tzalah made the two kruvim, it says, he made shnei kruvim. But in Parshas Truma, when it talks about the, the Hashem commands to make the kruvim, they're not called shnei kruvim. They're called shnayim kruvim. Now, shnayim kruvim doesn't seem to flow as much. Because shnayim means two, but shnei is two of. So seemingly... The later reference, Shnei Kruvim in Vayakel, is more accurate or more appropriate. Shnei Kruvim, slightly discordant. But that's what the Torah says. 
And what does then all of this mean? <laughs> well, uh, a truly rare and special explanation of all of this is to be found in the writings of Rabbi Yeshua Heller. Rabbi Yeshua Heller, who was a Talmud of Rabbi Salanter, a Talmud of, of Rabbi David Tevel of Minsk, <coughs> and we have certain writings from him, and he has a drosha on the Mishkan. His drushas are called Ohel Yoshua. His drush on the Mishkan is 60 pages long. Uh, it has 11 introductions. Uh, in the interest of the public welfare, we will uh, read selectively and choose judiciously. From the, uh, but, in, but in order to get the general idea of what it is that he's saying. And he begins as follows. Every act comprises really of uh, two elements. There is <coughs> the act itself, and there is the motivation for the act. The act is the external uh, act, and then, and then what, what drives the person towards the act. In the Torah, there are different terms used for these ideas. Or the terms are um, ahava, right, love for Hashem, and mitzvahs. The ava is the motivation, <coughs> and the mitzvahs are the, are the mitzvahs themselves, the act. And it's worthwhile investigating or contemplating which of these comes first. What comes first? The motivation or the act? The ahava or the mitzvah? And what we find, actually, is both orders. And, in fa- and interestingly, we find them, respectively, in the first and second chapters of the Shema. Because the first chapter begins, Ve'ohavta, uh, or Ve'ohavta, as Hashem Elokecha, and then moving on to mitzvah. So the first thing that it speaks about is Ava, which we are calling, associating with the motivation to, 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 to do good, and then goes on to describe the mitzvah. So in the first chapter, the Ava comes before the mitzvah. In the second chapter, if we see the opening Pasuk, it actually mentions mitzvahs before Ava. Im shama mitzvah sai. And then continues, le'ahava. So now, <coughs> the question is, well, which is it? Does the, does the love precede the mitzvah, or the mitzvah precede the love? Well, clearly, there's room for both possibilities, but what, what determines? What's the determining factor here? Well, this matter is actually discussed in a slightly different context in the classic Musar Sefer, Mesilat Yisharim, by the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato. And when he talks about Zrizus, so the Mesilat Yisharim says, there's two different levels of people, broadly speaking. There are people who are either naturally or, or, or already motivated and energized to do mitzvahs. There are. And for them, that, that will fuel their fulfillment of the mitzvahs. But there is a relatively lower level, <clears throat> a person who's not yet enthused and inspired, but he wants to be. So how does he get there? Says the Ramchal, and it, it, we see echoes of the Sefer HaChinuch in these words, and it's true in so many uh, different settings, action, act with alacrity, act with energy, and it will breed enthusiasm. A person is able to... to uh, Incubate within themselves 
and develop within themselves a certain inner feeling based on the a person can, can get carried along with their own actions and uh, and, th and that can that can carry the day for them so that's very interesting because in other words the, it, what emerges is that the two parshas of shema really reflect two different levels the first parsha of shema is uh, which talks about the ahava before the mitzvahs is the relatively higher level. The second parsha of Shema, which talks about the mitzvahs before the Ahava, so that is the that's the lower level where the mitzvahs breed the Ahava. Okay. There is another difference in this regard with um in terms of how the Torah expresses itself. We find that there are times when the Torah refers to the Jewish people in the singular, other times in the plural. Classic example is the encamping of the Jewish people, where uh, before Matan Torah, famously, the Pasuk says, Vayichan Sham Yisrael, Negedahar. It refers to the Jewish people in the singular, Vayichan. Subsequent journeys are all in the plural. Vayisu Vayachanu. And what's behind that? Well, as we know, and Rashi cites famously, that it's about the level of unity among them. That is to say, <coughs> uh, it's, it's whether they are as one. Famously, ki ish echad if they are all as one, there's unity among them, they are, they are referred to Beloshim, Yochid in the singular. And if there is discord among them, so then, or between them, so then uh, that's Loshon Rabbim. That is well known from Rashi. But Rabbi Shua Heller says there is more to it than that. Because the usage of the singular and the plural is not just about what we would call interpersonal unity. Are they together as one? It's about personal unity. Namely, are the forces within them, are they aligned? Are they unified? Because we'll appreciate that the, it's possible on the higher level, which we've been discussing, where the person's inner drive and the good things that they do are really unified with each other. So then, so then that person is one. But sometimes a person does the, the right thing even though he doesn't really want to. So there's a certain divergence within the person. And what's interesting is, go back to the opening, or to the two parshas of Shema. We saw that the first parsha refers to the, the love before the mitzvahs, which is the higher level. And the second is mitzvahs first and then ahava. How interesting it is to note that another difference between those two parshas of Shema is that the first one is written in the singular, and the second in the plural, and, the, and, and, and now we appreciate that the two go together. Why is the first parsha in the singular? Because since the Ahava is heading in the same direction, as the, as the good deeds, so there's unity within that person, and that's reflected in Lashon Yachid, 
in the singular form. Whereas in the second uh, parsha, where you have this disparity, one needs the mitzvahs in order to get there, but in the meanwhile, they're not really heading in the same direction. So that plurality is reflected in Loshan Rabim in the plural form. What does all of this have to do with us? How does this relate to, uh, to the Mishkan, to Truma, etc.? Although it is a, a major dispute among Rishonim, the approach of the Ramban is that the order of events, as we are to understand they occurred, corresponds to the order of the Parshas. And what that means is, in between the time when we were commanded to, to make the Mishkan and the time when we actually came to make the Mishkan, everything changed with the making of the Cheta Egel, with the sin of the Egel. That reflected a cataclysmic fall on the part of the Jewish people, and their, their level dropped propitiously. And how do we see this? Says Yabeshua Heller, this is another way to understand why, why the encamping before Matan Torah is in the singular, Vayichan Sham Yisrael. Because at that time, in the pre-Egel, the Jewish people were much more aligned and unified. That is to say, each and every person, their internal drive was in accord with, with the good deeds that they were doing, which, as we've seen, is the unity of, of Lashon Yachid. And that's why the, the singular of Vayichan is used. All subsequent encampings were post-Egel. And at that point, there is now this disparity the Jewish people have fallen from the higher level to the lower level. Or to put it slightly differently, if it will help us, they, they have fallen from the first parasha of Shema to the second. There's now there's a plurality within them, and that's reflected by the use of the plural in Vayachanu. What are the implications for the Mishkan? The Mishkan is there as a center for Avoda for divine service, for spiritual development, and, and all of these things for the Jewish people. But in order for the Mishkan to be effective and meaningful as the spiritual center of the Jewish people, it needs to reflect fundamentally the level that they're on. And what does this mean? <coughs> we know that there are 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, Tariq mitzvahs. This is also parallels another 613, which is the 613 parts of the body. Right? You have the Ramachivarim, the 248 limbs, the Shasagidim, the 365 sinews. You put that all together, that represents the person. And it stands to reason that there is an equation, there is a parallel between each individual part of the body and a certain mitzvah. Hard to say exactly which is this finger and which is that finger and which is this sinew and that sinew, but there, there, there will be a parallel, we can expect, of the 613 mitzvahs to the 613 parts of the body. The reason why this relates to the Mishkan is because Rabbi Shua Heller embarks upon a tally of every single component part of the Mishkan literally from the, from the major to the, to the detailed, and he lists them all, and, and the, the result is exactly 613 parts. 
So now we have three sets of 613. 613 mitzvahs, 613 parts of the body, 613 parts of the mishkan. Now, as difficult as it is, or as ambitious as, as it would be to uh, presume to understand each of the 613 mitzvahs, which part of the body does it relate to, what we can say with confidence is that in the same way that there are inner mitzvahs and outer mitzvahs, by which we mean mitzvahs that are about feelings and mitzvahs that are about actions, I mean, that distinction exists, and there are inner parts of the body and outer parts of the body, it stands to reason and is uh, presumably correct that the, in terms of the correlation, the inner parts of the body correspond to the inner mitzvahs. And by extension, when we come to the Mishkan, and we see that the Mishkan has Kalim inside of it, and then outside, it's, that's surrounded by the body of the Mishkan. Likewise, the inner vessels of the Mishkan will correspond to those inner mitzvahs, which are about feelings and emotions and, and such like. While the body of the Mishkan, the beams and, 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 and that, will be about the external actions correspond to those mitzvahs. And now, putting it all together, we understand why it is that in Parshas Truma, in this week's Parsha, the kalim, the vessels, the inner vessels, are mentioned before the body of the building of the Mishkan itself. Because Parshas Truma represents the pre-Egel level. And at that time, <coughs> the Jewish people are... are on, on the level where inner motivation leads to external act. And because that's true, so then it's correct for the inner parts of the Mishkan to be made first. Because that shows the, the flow from the inside to the outside. <coughs> After the Cheta Egel, we likewise appreciate that the order is reversed. First the building of the Mishkan and then the Kalim. Because the Jewish people, their level has dropped to what we're calling the second Parsha of Shema. Namely, they need the external actions in order to beget and bring about those internal feelings. So the, so the direction of action is really from the outside in. And that's why the Mishkan is built before the, inside, the inner Kalim. That's what's behind the difference between these two parshas. But now, says Rabbi Shua Heller, we can also understand why it was that Moshe, even though he was told by Hashem to tell Betzalel, make the building first and then the inner Kalim, he reversed the order. Why would Moshe do that? Because Moshe is looking to bring the Jewish people up to the highest level they can, they can be. In the same way that Moshe wants the best for the Jewish people, when Hashem says, I'll destroy them in the Egel, because they made the Egel, Moshe doesn't say, okay. Moshe, Moshe uh, pleads against it. He rails against it. So too, when Hashem says, 
there is a new order of the Mishkan because they fall into a lower level. Moshe is objecting. He wants them to still be by the higher level or to aspire to the higher level. And that's a protest. So when Hashem says, tell Betzalel to make the Mishkan first and then, then the vessels inside, go from the outside in, Moshe says, no, I want to go from the inside out. And that's what I'm going to tell Betzalel. But then Betzalel counters in a very deft way. And Betzalel says, Min <clears throat> It's the way of the world, and the person doesn't build a house that way. Now, now we raise the question, what's the way of the world got to do with the Mishkan? But that's Betzalel's way of saying that even if you are, are aspiring to have the Jewish people reclaim the original level, they're, they're, they fall in too far. They're, they're much closer now to Min Shel Ola. That's Betzalel's way of saying there's no traction between where they currently are and the, way, and the way you would like to build the Mishkan. And if it's too far above them, it won't help them. So this is now, until further notice, the way the Mishkan needs to be built is, is the way the Mishkan will help them. It, it has to be true to the way that they are going about their divine service and their fulfillment of the mitzvahs. And, and Moshe accepted it. But, but Salal is intimating <coughs> with the words, Min Olam, is we're, we're in Min Olam. We're in the shade. Moshe says, you're Bitzel Kel. You're in the shade of Hashem. Moshe still stands in the light, in a, directly in Hashem's light with this higher level. But the Jewish people are, are, are already in the shade. Already by, by Min Olam. Min Haklal El Haprat, having described how uh, the, the most major question of the order in which everything should be built, we now come back to <coughs> those more detailed questions. How do we refer to the beams, the 20 beams? It, uh, it's a, <coughs> almost a, um, uh, hard to notice the difference between them. But it is a difference. In this week's parasha, the 20 beams, as we noted, are called Esrim Keresh. And in Parshas Vayaka, they're called Esrim Krashim. Both of them meet 20 beams. But what is served by referring to the 20 beams in our Parsha as Esrim Keresh? Because Keresh is Loshen Yochit. If it can be done, whatever can be phrased in the singular is done so in Parshas Truma. Because Parshas Truma is yet the <coughs> level where there is that unity, there is that Vayichan, everything is, there's that oneness within Bnei Yisrael. And therefore, if you, if you have the choice of using krashim, which is the plural form, or keresh, which is the singular, you go for keresh, because everything is tending towards the, the, the unified state, <coughs> represented by Lashen Yachid, by, the, by the, 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 the singular form. In Parshas Vayakel, after the Cheta Egel, Esrim Keresh became Esrim Krashim. That unity became a plurality, as it did within the Jewish people. It's reflected even in these turns of phrase, so to speak, of the, <coughs> of the Pasuk. And by the same token, the two Kruvim, how are they referred to? As we noted in Parsha's Truma, our Parsha, they're called Shnaim Kruvim. In Parsha's Vayakal, Shnei Kruvim. Parsha's Vayakal seems to be the more, intuitively, we're more familiar with that. Two of something is Shnei. But what is the difference between Shnei and Shnaim? Says Rabbi Shua Heller, Shnei means two, without necessarily denoting a connection between the two. Shnaim means two things that are connected. 
He gives a fascinating example. We, do, we don't have time to go into all the details of the example. <coughs> but in the beginning of Sefer Yehoshua, which is the Haftorah for Parsha Shalach, and Yehoshua sends two Miraglim, and we know them as Pinchas and Kalev. Sometimes the Parsha refers to them as Shnaim Anoshim, and other times Shnei Anoshim. Says the Bishua Heller, as a rule, you will note that when they're together, they're called Shnaim Anoshim. At a certain point, they have to split up. So there's still two of them, but they're not together. And that's when they're called Shnei Anoshim, until they reunite. <coughs> and once again, therefore, Shnaim of something refers to two things that are connected. Because you have this connectivity in the pre-Cheta Egel, all the forces within, within uh, each individual are much more u- unified and cohesive with each other. So that's reflected that the two Kruvim themselves are called Shnaim Kruvim. And as we know it from the Kruvim themselves, they would face each other and even embrace uh, when the Jewish people were as they should. That's, that's when they're Shnaim Kruvim. Post-Acheta Egel, there's still two of them, but they're not Shnaim Kruvim anymore. They're Shnei Kruvim, because that, that connectivity of the different elements <coughs> has been lost. All different forces within man are heading in all different directions. That's the new Matzav. That, that's what needs to be dealt with, and it's dealt with by the building of the Mishkan first, and then the Kalim afterwards. So this is uh, the extent that we could uh, do justice to it, is, this, is the, the synopsis <coughs> of the approach of uh, Drush Aleph of Rabbi Shua Heller, Ol Yoshua, but it, it, it does so many things. It, it, it sets aside as distinct, each one with their own um, uh, frame, two parshas which otherwise be, be looked upon one as a repetition of the other. For all that they have in common, all the more reason to notice that which is different between them. And again, not only the general differences, it, as big as it gets, in what order is everything done? Canaan first or Mishkan first? But also down to those nuances, those details. Esrim Keresh, Esrim Krashim, Shnei Kruvim, Shnayim Kruvim, Vechahena, Vechahena. So with this, uh, we have uh, concluded our first installment of our discussion of the Parshas of the Mishkan to be continued in Ritz Hashem uh, next week. And in the meanwhile, wish you all a good evening, a good week ahead. We should have Besoros, Tovos, ourselves, Leklal, Viliprat. All the best.